Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Well, hi, Christina. How are you? I am ready for this semester to be over. (laughs) Almost. Yeah, I hate saying that because I love teaching, but this has been... Online teaching can be really demoralizing. Hi, Emily. Hi. Um, how many students do you have and or sections? I have two sections. Uh, I probably have somewhere around 50 students. Mm, that's a lot. It, yeah, I mean, it could be worse. I'm not... But you're yeah. also doing your PhD and getting all that sorted out while you're teaching 50 students. Oof. Yeah, and... Um, I won't go into too much detail, but our history department got the opportunity to have a class that increases the students in our department that need to take classes in our department. But it's a class where you have to invent the entire thing yourself from scratch, (laughs) which is amazing. It's like a great opportunity, but it's also terrible. (laughs) Well, I'm going to do a little bit of a formal introduction here to Christina and launch us off into the wonderland of podcasting. Um, listeners, Christina Benham has been a friend of mine and, uh, of, well, of Anne's even longer, but of mine for about five and a half years. And I met her at uh, the orientation day for the history department of the University of Cincinnati. <laughs> and we sent each other all the Christian signals and discovered <laughs> we were both, you know, lowercase e evangelicals. And uh, we've uh, been friends ever since then. But Christina is a a scholar of American history, the American Revolution. And she is making a name for herself. She has one of the biggest names in the business for her dissertation advisor. And she's been on panels with people that if I had some American history nerds in here, they'd be losing their mind at the names (laughs) that I would drop. But nobody else is going to care, so I won't burden them with it. (laughs) And um, not for nothing, just sidebar, she has the best caboose in the business. And I can't wait for David to ask me what I mean by that. So oh, no. <laughs> she's all but dissertation. She's at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Christina Benham is on the podcast. That's quite an introduction, one that might never happen for me again. (laughs) Yeah, if I had to stand up and introduce you in front of Mary Beth Norton, I probably wouldn't say the bit about the caboose. Thank you. But another reason, Christina, I mean, you're going to be able to tell just by listening to her talk, but Christina's life story is very interesting because she, um, like David, is and like all of us on this podcast, in some way is differently abled. And Christina, can you explain to us, um, because it's you have sort of an invisible disability that requires a little bit of explanation when people interact with you sometimes. Okay, and I'm assuming you're referring to the fact that I'm legally blind. Correct. I have a condition called achromatopsia. It's very rare. All that means is 
technically that term means I'm completely colorblind. It's super rare in general. In fact, I've never met anyone else who has this uh, in person. I know some people online. And I wasn't diagnosed until I was in my 30s um, because it's just that uncommon. In fact, when I was diagnosed, there were only three doctors in the United States who specialized in this. So the main symptoms of this um, condition are legal blindness, uh, which is a definition that was basically set up by the federal government in the 30s. Then light sensitivity, extreme light sensitivity, um, and complete colorblindness. And then there's sometimes other symptoms like I had nystagmus, which is where your like eye control is, is not... Yeah, it got a lot better as I grew up. How do I go from there about invisible? Well, so... With with David, who we interviewed earlier on the podcast, and Bennett's making his presence very known right now, um, David both tells people right away when they encounter him that he's blind, but also most people can figure that out pretty quickly when they look at him. And then there are certain ways that people orient themselves around David, for example, and um, have a pretty good guess about how they ought to interact with him. But you have uh, different ways of interacting with the world that other people wouldn't perceive or know about unless you spelled it out to them. I know you've told me about, like, for example, deciding whether or not to use a white cane yeah. or stick when you're out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, growing up, I was very resistant to accommodations because <laughs> I did not want to stand out and actually... As I've grown to know the online achromatopsia community, I've found that a lot of people have had this experience where they just very naturally from early childhood learn to hide their mm. difficulty um, because you can see well enough that you can kind of fool people, um, which I think is the case with other disabilities as well. But that can be very challenging because then when you suddenly cannot perform the way that others around you can, there, there's no understanding and, there, and it feels very frightening. Um, when I tell people about it, the thing that they latch on to first is the colorblindness because it's fascinating. Uh, but it's actually the least debilitating part of this condition. The, the most debilitating part would be the light sensitivity. So if I had no, like, sunglasses or tinting of any sort when I'm out in full daylight, I am essentially blind. Um, I can barely see anything. Mm. Um, and when I did finally get diagnosed, the doctor who diagnosed me said, you know, I'll run the tests, but I could diagnose you in a crowded room without even talking to you, simply <gasps> from the light sensitivity. Because mm. it's so... There's no condition that even comes close to the level of light sensitivity of achromatopsia. It's really debilitating. And when I got these tinted contacts, which is just a very practical solution, it was life-changing. Um, uh, for blind people, there's some sort of um, state-supported services to teach certain methods of being independent. And one of those is they'll co contract people who are mobility specialists who teach you how to take the buses and cross the streets and, you know, things like that that seem mm -hmm. easy for people who are fully sighted. But for someone even like me, crossing the street used to be this horrible terror. <laughs> um, 
didn't really take full advantage of that until I was here at Baylor um, through mm -hmm. the state of Texas. And so it wasn't until I was here that I actually got cane training. Um, and I, what I found was I used it especially on public transportation because it made it so much easier. I didn't have to explain anything. Like as soon as I see the mm -hmm. white cane, they just automatically know that you can't see like them. And so they will help you and they'll watch out for you and they'll, you don't have, you know, you just say, I need help and they'll say, okay, what do you need? Uh, instead of me approaching a stranger and looking like a normal human being and saying, I am legally blind, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, what? Well, let me ask first about, so you're describing, you know, a lot of um, obstacles with being outdoors and with transportation and stuff, but a lot of what historians do, not all of what historians do, is just like reading. So um, do, you have, do you have strategies that other people wouldn't know about to um, navigate academic life? I have a two-part answer to this. <laughs> I, it does take me longer to read things, just period. Um, I'm certain it takes me longer to read things, which is problematic when you are in graduate programs that require obscene amounts of reading. Um, mm. Even when you are um, told to quote unquote gut a book or for those who are outside of the history realm that means basically dissect the book and get the information you need and ignore the rest. <laughs> You're not reading the whole thing. Um, but even then I still struggled a lot. So I said this was a two-part answer and this is where we get to the second part. Um, my first year here at the end of the year I was diagnosed with uh, OCD and major depression and I thought beforehand that a lot of my difficulty was that I wasn't trying hard enough and that I didn't, mm. I couldn't read fast enough. And once I started getting treatment for these things, I realized, oh, there's a lot of input of problems coming from uh, mental illness, um, which in a lot of ways, I mean, it's a lot, I don't know, I don't know how to continue that discussion about mental illness and disability, but it's a very real thing. <laughs> well, it's a very real thing. Can you explain what OCD is and what it looks like for you? Because I think that there's a, a, a stereotype of what OCD looks like yes. that you might help uh, combat. It's not about wanting things clean. It's not about being super particular or detailed. Those are all characteristics that often and usually come with someone who has OCD. Um, but it's actually defined by having regular intrusive thoughts that are unwanted and distressing. So some people, like myself, um, don't have any or very few, very little external behavioral signs of OCD. You wouldn't know, in other words, and nobody did know. <laughs> I was also diagnosed with that in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, life begins in your 30s. That's what I found oh, out. Oh, man, yeah. My life has changed a lot in the last few years, in a good way. Um, it really varies from person to person. So, yes, I could give my example, which is the thing that my OCD latched onto most as I grew up was making mistakes, quote-unquote. So it's sort of this vicious cycle of your you have an intrusive thought about something. For me, it was like, oh, I said or did this, and that was a mistake. Um, and then and instead of 
your brain, like a brain normally functioning, could do something with that and then move on. With an OCD brain, it's like this, like cycling through, um, responding to that in a way that, like an extreme anxiety response, and then some sort of compulsion, like something you feel compelled to do to make the anxiety stop temporarily. Um, but unfortunately, it creates this like neural pathway that just repeats itself over and over and over. Um, and so people who have more outward behavioral versions of this aren't, you know, cleaning their shower 10 times a day because they like to. They are doing it because they're driven by fear and the need to feel better um, when those thoughts come into their head. Yeah, so it's not like, I think the stereotype that always comes to my mind is repetitive hand washing, you know, or making the bed so that it, you can bounce a quarter off of it, but it's not, it's not about those behaviors necessarily, it's just about a compulsive need that someone has to fulfill uh, in order to then eventually get to the place where they can move on to the next mm -hmm. thing, is that right? Yes, and it, it kind of, like any mental illness that has sort of an up and, you know, an up and down, sometimes are better than others, um, and sometimes are worse, and when things are worse, it starts to, like, pile on top of itself and become more overwhelming, um, so that the more times you find yourself doing it, the more you start panicking about that it's happening. It's sort of a self-feeding, um, and it can, like, for me, when I, so this answers the question about reading and grad school, when I started getting treatment for this, I realized, oh my goodness, part of the reason I can't keep up is because I have to, like, sometimes three or four times or more on a page while I'm reading. My brain is interrupted and I have to stop and try to refocus and, you know, my brain's doing all these extra gymnastics on top of trying to read. Mm -hmm. um, so it really is a problem that can be debilitating in the sense of taking up time taking up mental space, um, and it's emotionally exhausting and painful. Yeah, there's a lot that's below the surface that's difficult for people to understand if they haven't um, experienced it or known somebody who has it. Emily's nodding mm -hmm. along. <laughs> I wondered if you could um, trace back, and this can be anything you want it to be, um, <laughs> Any moment, anything that you find significant, it could be when you first knew you loved history, um, or when some of, maybe when some of these things were cropping up and you maybe didn't have the language for them. Is there anything kind of pinging up for you? Oh, good grief! I kind of wish I had preparation for this, so you can edit this around as it seems logical. Because I, I might, will, I might <laughs> flow in unpredictable directions. Oh, Christina, do you, my friend, please. Um, so I guess I see three major things. One being these two different disabilities that I've talked about. Um, and then the other being my relationship with God over the years and how he has shown up in my life. Mm. Um, so if you are talking about the... Um, the achromatopsia, one story that people like to, well, I don't know if they like to hear about it, but they do often ask, um, is that 
my parents did not know I was colorblind until they tried to teach me colors. And I remember trying very hard as a very young child to learn colors. And I had no idea that I didn't have the tools to actually learn this. Oh. <laughs> I, just, I just thought I had to memorize everything. Like oh. this was a test and I just had to remember that that one ornament on the, <laughs> on the you know, um, mantle was blue. And that was the right answer. <laughs> and that went on for a while before my parents realized, oh, wait, no, this is not, you're, you're not getting this. Something's wrong. <laughs> um, and I say that because I think, I think this is true. It's sort of a sink or swim sort of dynamic that happens a lot with people with visual impairments. And I can't speak for other disabilities, but I've noticed it a lot in the people I talk to who uh, um, conditions like mine or other visual impairments is that you sort of have to, like, there's no one around you who's like you, and so you have to sort of figure it out on your own, like, and you can either um, sort of collapse inward and lean on someone to do everything for you, or you can just, like, go out there and hope that you can make it. There's a good balance in between, but I didn't have that necessarily yeah. growing up. Um, and I actually am grateful to God for that because it made for a lot of determination. Um, mm -hmm. Almost to the point of a fault, but <laughs> but I am where I am today because of that determination. Um, with my, with the mental illness, I had a, I had a major, like I had several years of major depression as a young teenager um, that were pretty, pretty difficult for me and for my family. Um, and no one really was able to identify at the time what was really going on. Um, and so when that came upon me again in my first year at, in my PhD, I was like, no, 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 this is not happening. No, no, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And then after, you know, several months, I'm like, no, it is not fine. <laughs> um, and that's when I went in to the counseling center, which led to a long train of uh, things that revealed what was really going on. And then I started being able to look back and see things like, an example would be when I was a small child, I remember being in the car whenever we were on the highway and I would have these terrible gripping fears that I would open the door and throw myself out. And that is a classic example of an OCD intrusive thought. Mm. People frequently have fears about harming themselves, harming others. Um, yeah, and, and looking back, yeah. I realized, oh, this is not a normal thing for a like, seven-year-old or however old I was mm. to be experiencing. And I didn't have the words at that age to express, like, mom, what the heck is going on? I'm feel weird about this, um, you know, that's another thing you just learn to hide and hope that you mm. will grow into a more confident and normal person, um, which did not happen. <laughs> I had to, I had to get treatment for that to really turn mm. around. And what about your relationship with God? Um, yeah, I am so grateful I have to say, I'm very grateful to God for so many things. Um, and I 
don't want to make it sound like it's all rosy. Um, this is another area of my life that I'm hesitant to say much, but I have also struggled with a lot of um, trauma from my past, especially childhood. Um, and so there definitely were things along the years. So let me start by saying I became a believer when I was four years old. And I genuinely, like, it was the grace of God to me to bring me in under his wing at such a young age because I really needed it. Mm. Um, not that other people don't, but, you know, I just, there were a lot of rough roads ahead. So, um, mm. and it really was just me laying in bed realizing, oh, my word, this thing I learned about in Sunday school about Jesus actually applies to me. And I, like, got out of my bed and prayed and ask God to forgive me of my sins and, you know, take my life and, like, mm -hmm. take it into his hands. And um, there was never a moment where I felt like, oh, that wasn't real. I need to, a real conversion. Um, mm -hmm. It's. I feel like he's been there since then. But like I said, it's never, not always been rosy. I had long stretches of feeling very angry with God, except I wasn't one of those, like, super rebellious, stubborn people who's like, I'm angry, and I'm going to curse the heavens, you know. God, God bless those people. They're in some ways bolder than I am. I was too scared to face the fact that I was angry at God. Wow. Um, for the family situation he landed me in, and for other things, like, I just felt so... And when that door would open, I'd, like, cry hot tears at night. I was like, no, I'm just going to close that door because I don't know what to do with it. Um... And there was a moment during my master's degree when, I don't want to get too, like, mystical, but <laughs> I really felt like God spoke to me and opened that door and said, we're going we're gonna to face this head on. And, and I, I just told him how I felt. I was like, you're supposed to be good enough. I don't feel like you are. And why are things like this? And I feel like I'm never going to. I'm never doing good enough, and on and on and on. And I just told him what I... <laughs> and he's like, okay, well, um, this is how you've seen your life. This is how I've seen your life. I don't know if you've... So I feel like this will be sound like a subject change, but there was a... If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, my favorite mm. book is um, The Horse and His Boy. And it's because there's this chapter called the unwelcome fellow traveler. And this is where um, Shasta, he is, I can't give you the whole story, but he's alone on a horse in the mist and he doesn't know how to ride it and he suddenly realizes there's this giant scary creature lurking next to him and he has had a lot of bad things happen to him in his life. He was an orphan, he was abused by someone who basically used him as a slave, like, a lot of bad things happened. And then it turns out that this creature next to him is Aslan, and he has this conversation with him where he's like, actually, I was there all along, and I was pushing you towards myself, and I was leading you home by those things that were happening. And, oh my gosh, <laughs> I still want to cry when I think about it. Um, but did that, does that make, like, all the answers tightly, you know, tied up with a bow, neat bow, no, but it, it made it clear to me for my life why some of the things that I had struggled with happened. 
I so that happened in the middle of my master's degree and it was a really major turning point for me in in trusting God and, and hearing him answer me and actually that reminds me of another important story something that happened to me um, which was actually before that was during my undergrad I was home for a summer and if anyone I would guess the people listeners in your area might remember this there was the derecho of 2012 this one in particular was well known at the time because it started just as it entered the state of Ohio and it went all the way to the coast of Virginia and so it hit a ton of really highly populated areas and millions and millions of people were without power for we were without power for a week anyway that's not the point the point was I had <laughs> just like most people I had no idea this thing was coming so I was in I was at home I was kinda like living the summer lazy college life um, and I was like getting ready after taking a shower and like you know whatever whatever and then I walked into my room and I realized I had been out of the room for a minute and I missed a call from my mom who was supposed to be at work and I was like that's weird and then it turned out she had left me a voicemail and the voicemail was like I heard like blowing wind and you know rustling and then then all I heard was Christy get in the basement now 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 and I was like oh my gosh <laughs> because my mom had no idea what was going on all she knew was she was seeing seeing things like flying through the air and those oh like super gosh. high winds and the tornado sirens were going well that was west of me so I had no nothing was there yet for me um, so I end up I literally ran straight to the basement with a crank radio in one hand my cell phone in another and a yardstick to beat off the cobwebs because this was like <laughs> an old country house basement <laughs> barely a basement <laughs> um, and instantly it just turned into this I mean terrifying storm wind so high I, I mean I've never appreciated wind speed until then <laughs> they had clocked the highest wind speeds in our area at 91 miles per hour so I am in this basement in the dark and I am scared out of my mind because I thought it was gonna be a tornado that's usually what we have in Northwest Ohio you know there's tornadoes that's where I'm from I was like praying God I, I'm about to die like this is the end <laughs> I was so scared so scared I was shaking like a leaf and I prayed and prayed and I was like okay God I cannot handle this I need you to help me I really need your help and I don't know how to explain it but he did he intervened and he helped and I remember afterwards being impressed with the idea that I had no idea this was coming but he knew exactly what was coming mm -hmm. and that he showed up when I called on him and helped me and it didn't mean that everything got immediately better but he mm -hmm. was there and he helped me so the reason I'm telling that story is because when I got to the uh, when my first year of my PhD was a horrible black hole of mental illness and just fear and pain and sadness it was very bad it was a very bad place um, and I had a moment where I it was bad enough that I was afraid like if I call somebody right now they're just gonna send me to the hospital and I don't want to do that <laughs> and so 
I took a walk and I said, God, I, and I had read this verse about God um, carrying our burdens. And I just walked and I said, God, I, I cannot do this. I need your help. I need you to, to carry some of this for me. Um, and he did. He answered me and he helped me make it through until the next thing and until the next thing and until the next thing. Um, and now I'm looking back on that first year. You know, I've been here four and a half years now, and I feel like so many things that I prayed for for years have finally been answered. Um, oh, wow. These helped me to be able to be confident, to overcome some of those things that were holding me back from being a good friend to others and being uh, to be able to function well in a professional environment. Like there was just so many things about my internal world that, that he's really helped me with over the last several years to the point where I feel almost not like a totally different person, but very much different than I was three years ago. Wow. Yeah. I love that. I love that Shasta metaphor too, because isn't he climbing up a mountain? Yeah. And he's on the precipice, and what he doesn't know is Aslan is basically keeping him, this creature that he's terrified of and he can't really see, mm -hmm. is keeping him from falling off mm -hmm. the mountain by walking. They're walking the whole time they're talking, and Jess is trying not to freak out and <laughs> listening to the story, but also physically bounding a line and saying, you will not fall, and I'm going to tell you all the times I haven't let you fall in your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite chapters of, of the whole series. You know, Christina, your life has contained a lot of um, stories that have testified to me and that have um, some of which I've told to other people. But we all grew up, I think, in similar-ish, you know, religious backgrounds, and there's a particular kind of love story that we really privilege in the, the kind of cauldron of Christianity that we grew up in. And something that I've been collecting in my life are other kinds of love stories. And, like, so, for example, one that has really taught me and that I like to talk about to other people is between Anne and her mother. Um, I think that's one of the great love stories that I know. But your life has one of them, too, and it's you and Rachel. Hmm. And I hope that I haven't been telling this story incorrectly because even though it's instructive the way I've been telling it, I also want it to be true, <laughs> that I believe at one point she told you, and I don't know what exactly it was that was happening. So Rachel, you'll tell us who that is, but your best friend. And um, something was really massively distressing you. And she said, Christina, don't be scared and alone. Let me be scared with you. And the first yeah. time I heard that, it was just like a chill went through me because I thought that is one of the great, I mean, that is like um, Naomi and Ruth, you know. Mm -hmm. That's one of the great love stories. Um, but yeah, so Rachel is like your exact opposite, and you two have a yeah. long <laughs> and mystical history, like Sam and Frodo going through yeah. the world together. Yeah, she's gonna be 
losing her mind when she hears this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Rachel and I grew up in the same um, tiny northwest Ohio town. And when I say tiny, I mean this place was a village, less than 300 people. She sought me out because she's a very <laughs> bold personality. <laughs> That's I'm, so her. Yes. I am very much the wallflower. She is very much the life of the party. Um, and some of that has changed for her a little bit as she's learned more about herself, but she's still a very just gregarious and warm, open, loving person. She's been there for me in many important ways. Loyalty to it as a high priority is something we share in common. And when I was struggling with a like my plans to move to Texas fell through, Rachel was like, I will go in with you and rent a moving truck and drive the dang thing all the way to Texas by myself because you can't drive. So anyway, but then another example would be when Rachel, um, when I first was diagnosed with OCD and things were just a very, it was very dark for me for a long time, even after that. Um, she, for a long time, contacted me every single day to make sure I was okay and just to check in on me, um, just being there, being somebody present who was listening and, and asking and understanding. Um, so, yeah, that's where that quote came from. <laughs> and I had I, it right? Yes. I told her that I was scared and alone, and she said, don't, don't be scared and alone. Let me be scared with you. Um, and that's very characteristic of her loving in a way that, that she wants to share in the difficulties of other people. And, and I've been able to reciprocate um, in some of the yeah. extreme difficulties that her family has gone through as well. So. And I love that she didn't say, don't be afraid. I mean, it's one thing when an angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid. You know, it's another thing when another human being says it. And it's like, well, I am afraid, damn it. You know, that didn't help me. But just to say, um, I can't, maybe I can't make you not afraid, or maybe I shouldn't make, shouldn't suggest there's nothing to be afraid of, but I can join you. That's what I can do. And so that's what I'm going to do. I, that to me is what, impresses me about it so much mm -hmm. um, being willing to come up under the thing that is so heavy I think that's a good point for anyone approaching someone with any kind of hopefully I don't overgeneralize but definitely with anyone with a disability is being willing to be vulnerable um, not as the not as like you you expect them to be vulnerable but you walk in saying I don't understand and I want to and I might show myself as ignorant about what you're experiencing but I want to understand and I want to be there with you and know you as, for who you are where you're at right now <laughs>